0: This uh, page of the Bible that we just heard read for us, um, it like has it all that you would expect out of an Old Testament page, right? God sends this killer hornet ahead of the armies to just strike panic into the hearts of the enemy, and then Joshua takes a rock and says, this rock has been listening, and like, this is really kind of weird, right? But we pray that God would use uh, these strange and wonderful things for our good. Um, Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, that not a single word of yours uh, falls to the ground and just does nothing, but like a seed entering our hearts, it does a lot of good, and Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would make that happen for us today, that you would take this word of yours and uh, grow it in our lives for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, Joshua is 110 years old when he preaches this final sermon of his. It's his last sermon to Israel, and he knows it. He gathers representatives from each of the 12 tribes. And look what he does from verse 2 all the way down to verse 13. Joshua tells them exactly what the Lord has said. The Lord's very own words to Israel. It's, it's kind of the Old Testament gospel. The true story about how God has kept every one of his promises. And uh, those promises have to do with God rescuing his people again and again. Now, Joshua is not the kind of preacher who just tells you these things and then quits, expecting you and me to connect all the dots. So, in verse 14, He wants to do something with this and he's saying in light of God's faithful track record of being so gracious, so generous, so good to you, in light of God's grace, make a decision today. Who are you going to worship? Which God are you going to serve for the rest of your life? And the people give Joshua the right answer. They really do. Uh, It's a wonderful answer. Uh, But then amazingly, Joshua is not exactly uh, just accepting that answer of theirs. And he argues with them. And he says, no, you're not able to do this. You might be sincere, but you are powerless You don't have within you what it takes to change your heart. And that's what's going to be necessary. And God is going to have every reason to judge you. But they insist, no, this time we will obey. We will follow through. I don't know if that's anything like your own life. Uh, You genuinely tell God that you will follow him with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then maybe just an hour later, you are drifting and even choosing to sin. And um, some of us come up with some somewhat clever theological excuses to perpetuate this kind of lifestyle of just wavering between two opinions. We'll say things to ourselves like, well, I'm simultaneously a saint and a sinner, which is true, but you know, we're using that as an excuse to just be apathetic and not even try to obey God. Or we'll say, look, God is sovereign, so it's really not up to me, so none of my choices really matter. Joshua knows that even as Israel is saying all these good things about following God and choosing him, Joshua knows that secretly they have idols hiding out in their backpack or somewhere close by. So like a father who loves his children and knows them, Joshua is wrestling with their hearts in this final sermon of his. After getting the people to say, not just once, but three times, we will serve the Lord, Joshua puts it down into writing. He cuts a covenant, as they say, this solemn life and death agreement that they will serve the Lord. And then he takes this big rock and says, look, this stone, it's it's been listening It will be a legal witness against you if later you break faith with God. It's a strange page of the Bible. A stone is listening. A hornet is going ahead of the army to strike fear into the enemy. Why doesn't God do some stuff like that for us, right? We, We could use a killer bee or a killer wasp. On certain days of the week. We we could use a stone that listens to things and holds people accountable. Well, I, I want you to see that you have received from Jesus a much better gift than a killer hornet or a listening rock. God has given you something more powerful to expedite your mission, and He's provided a better means of accountability than a listening stone. I grew up in a church where the preacher was always trying to get us to make a decision. And we memorized this verse, choose ye this day whom you shall serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, right? And I was frequently in some degree of fear That perhaps last week when I had made the decision, I was insincere and that maybe tonight was my last chance and I should make the decision again while I still could. The emphasis was all on me, my words, my promises, my sincerity, the strength of my will. So Joshua just has this one last sermon. I guarantee you, the main point of his final sermon was not try harder, mean it this time, (laughs) make a decision and that'll be the key to your future success. Uh, That is not the right understanding of what he's doing here. He's actually giving the people the good news of God's grace in their whole history. How again and again, God has shown his love to them by rescuing them. And then he tells them the blunt truth about their inability to follow through on their own promises. And then he points them in the direction of how God is going to follow through on his promises to them in the future. If you struggle with an addiction, or if you struggle with any sin in your life, You know how frustrating it is when you desire to change, but you discover that you cannot break free, right? You cannot change your heart. And that sort of heart-level change, you discover it's going to take more than willpower or even a good accountability group. And Joshua, he is asking Israel to make this clean break with their lifestyle of sin. But as you know, some addictions, they involve our entire being. There's the chemical aspect with our body. There's our soul. There's our habits day by day. The gospel is not about a quick and easy fix. But God is the God of miracles. And he does the impossible. I've heard from just secular sources in recent years, this kind of message that, hey, um, change is impossible for the human person. You are what you are. This is different than another message I've heard all my life, which is you can do anything you want to do. But this, this other message is just like change is impossible. You're never going to change. So just accept who you are. And they talking about things that the scripture would call sin, and and, and the message is just like, that's part of who you are naturally, and just embrace that. That's not what Joshua is saying in verse 19 when he says, you are not able to serve the Lord. He's not implying, therefore just accept that. Joshua is not telling you to give up, to stop trying. Like a good gospel preacher Joshua is calling you to do what you cannot do. Trust God with your whole life. Trust God to do the miracle that needs to be done in your heart. The gospel is such good news because it tells you that not only is it theoretically possible for deep, personal, radical change to take place in your heart, the gospel says that, because of Jesus' perfect life and death for you and rising from the dead, because of that, change deep in your life is not just theoretically possible, it is a definite fact. It's in fact what Jesus has been doing. So, a personal make-or-break decision, as good as it is, it's not the key That unlocks eternal life for you. Only Jesus can do that. But a clean break with darkness, that is still the right response to the gospel. Even if we lack the power to change ourselves, God still calls us to make a clean break with our sinful way of life. Think about that paralyzed man. Remember the one whose friends brought him to Jesus and they lowered him down from the ceiling that day? And remember how Jesus looked at that man in his paralyzed condition and he commanded him to do what the man obviously could not do, get up and walk. And so God, who does the miracle, calls for us to do what we cannot do do. This final speech of Joshua's, it's taking place in a certain geographical location, where I've personally never been, but we just all have to imagine this place called Shechem. Okay, so in the book of Genesis, you read about certain things that all happen at Shechem. Abraham stood there at Shechem one day when the Lord God promised Abraham to make his descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and promised Abraham that they would inherit that very land. And then much later in Genesis, Abraham's grandson Jacob, he was also at Shechem when he spoke to his growing family and said, okay, y'all, you need to get your idols that you've stowed away in your saddlebags and it's time to bring them out and give them up. And so they did, like Jacob's family, they, they had idols. And they got these things out. They gave them to Father Jacob. He dug a hole under this tree and he buried them there. It's all at this place called Shechem. So here it is hundreds of years later, Joshua chapter 24 once again, we are at Shechem, and who is there listening to this final sermon? This huge crowd of people, not more numerous than the stars in the sky, but still, they are a living, breathing fulfillment of that promise from God. And they have just inherited the land with Joshua, just like God had promised Abraham. And then, like Jacob, Joshua is calling these people, this numerous crowd of people, he's calling them, just like Jacob did, to give up their idols in verse 23. And once again, people are like, oh yeah, I've got one right here. And and they pull it out and they hand it over. Um, Yeah, they've they've been clinging to these idols. And it's almost humorous, except that it's kind of a serious thing, right? It's humorous to think about the metric ton weight of all these idols coming out of Egypt. Like you only have so many things to bring with you on the big trip. It's Passover. You're going to cross through the Red Sea. What are, you, what are you taking in your backpack? Well, you know, I've got some unleavened bread and an idol. <laughs> We're packing idols for 40 years through the desert. And then we get to the Jordan River. We're doing a covenant renewal revival meeting at the river We still got our idols. We go through Moab and, oh my, they're having a buy one idol, get one free sale. And these idols pertain to the new land we're going into. These gods are the rain gods for the new land. Hmm, Thinking about picking up a couple of those. You know, idolatry is never a theoretical issue. It's an existential threat for all of us. It's not if you have a divided heart. It's what excuses have you been giving yourself lately? What is it in your own life that you know just has to change? Joshua knew that it would be a tragedy if Israel had experienced all these miracles from the Lord, victory over the Canaanites, only for the next generation to just... Walk away from God. I mean, would that not be a tragedy if you and I grew up hearing about the love of Jesus for us personally, and instead of embracing God and enjoying him, we just kind of yawned and got bored and walked away. Joshua is demanding a decision. Choose this day whom you will serve. And perhaps you're thinking, that's too much pressure. Can't can't we just at least sleep on it first? But Joshua knows, he's 110 years old. His time is short. So this is his last sermon. and, And he realizes that his approaching death will be A clarifying moment for Israel. Everyone will find out, have we been faking it out of respect for Joshua? Or is there genuine faith in God, in our hearts? So what is Joshua going to emphasize in his final sermon? Well, from verses 2 to 13, he emphasizes the gospel. God's grace to his people Again and again, God's generosity and giving them the opposite of what they deserved. Instead of consuming them in the wilderness, God gave them a rich, abundant life in the land of Canaan. And Joshua reviews that whole history with them and says, look, you come from a long line of idolaters, Your ancestor Abraham, he was an idol worshiper, and God intervened, brought him out of that lifestyle, and he's been doing that same intervention in your life, Israel, year after year, day after day. Abraham was rescued from his crippling, addictive, self-destructive idolatry, and God's been rescuing you, O Israel, out of that same cycle of sin. He brought you out of slavery. He brought you through the Red Sea, defeated all your enemies, even the spiritual attack from Balaam. And if Joshua were preaching to us today, he would take the history further and say, and what has God done in the fullness of time? He has sent his one and only son to live a perfect life for you, to die in your place. And rising from the dead, Jesus takes that resurrection life and brings it into your life by giving you the Holy Spirit. Liberation from Egypt is very good, but it's small stuff compared to Jesus' gift to anyone who trusts in him, his gift of a perfect, clean record of righteousness, and acceptance into the kingdom of God. That Jesus is still alive, occupying the most authoritative, powerful space in the universe where he is praying, even now, for you, effective prayers to get you through. So in verse 13, the Lord is preaching to Israel through Joshua, And the Lord says, I gave you a land on which you had not labored in cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Now, that gospel of a free, abundant life in a wonderful land, that good news was supposed to shape Israel's heart. I want you to think about how is the gospel of Jesus, how has it been shaping your heart? Because you've received even better news than vineyards and up and running olive orchards. How is the gospel daily changing your life? Israel's history was a long string of failures, rebelling against God, complaining against God. It was also a history of a long string of God's love and forgiveness and restoration of his people. If you took a piece of graph paper, which we probably don't have anymore, you'd have to get on your screen or something, but if if you took a graph and plotted the significant events in your life, the high points, the low points of your life, where on that graph of your life would the grace of God be? Or would the whole graph just be a wash in the grace of God? In verse 15, Joshua gives the people a choice, and I really expect him to give them two choices. Make it simple. Make this vote clear. Follow God or follow idols. But Joshua kind of complicates it. He gives you two different sets of idols and then the Lord God. So you, you can vote for the gods back in Chaldea, the old gods, Father Abraham's gods. You can vote for the new gods of Canaan. Or you can serve the one true God. Do you gravitate more towards the old idols of tradition and pride and self-righteousness and respectability? Or do you kind of prefer the, the new gods of lust and greed and the right to define myself? You know, idolatry exists on both sides of the culture war. And really, the ultimate struggle is not about culture. It's not about flesh and blood. It's concerning the worship of your creator. Something, is, something very beautiful is at work in this world. Whenever an ordinary person like Joshua is able to say, on behalf of his whole household, we will serve the Lord. And I love Israel's response. I believe it is genuine. Look at verse 16, and you discover their understanding of their default setting. They do not imagine that they stand on neutral ground where they can objectively decide I'm going to choose the true God or I'm going to choose one of these sets of idols. They don't think of themselves as occupying that neutral space of, oh, there's some things here to vote for and I get to make the call. No, they they admit in verse 16 that they already belong to the Lord. Look at this. They say, far be it from us, that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. That is a beautiful statement that they make. They are admitting that this isn't just some choice they get to make, a vote for the idols or a vote for God. No, choosing the idols, they understand, will be a rejection of the God to whom they already belong. Their choice to follow the Lord this day is not the choice to start a new relationship or to establish a relationship with the Lord. It's simply a choice to continue with the God to whom they already belong. They're admitting we are already in a covenant relationship with the Lord. We were born into this far, be it from us to forsake him. And the reason they give for that is that, Hey, um, who God is and what he has done. Their reason for sticking with the Lord isn't about themselves. It's about the Lord. So, If we can think about our own vows and promises. Here, that Israel was making a vow that day. But what about your own vows? Your church membership vows? Your marriage vows? How are we doing with these solemn promises that shape our life? As soon as Israel says, we will serve the Lord, I don't know about you, but I'm ready to sing the final song and go home. It's like, yep, that's good. Let's wrap this up. That was a good answer, Joshua. Let's go. But Joshua is not having it. He, um, he reminds them that God is 100% holy. And then he says there's this thing called total depravity. It's not as if you are as evil as you possibly could be, but every aspect of your being is tainted by sin so that you cannot follow through on these promises to obey the Lord. And it's pretty serious because God is not going to just wink at your sin and like brush it off. He's 100% holy, and so he's going to consume you. This is dangerous stuff. But the people are so insistent for a second time they say no. We will serve the Lord. And again, the second time, once again, I am so happy about this. I want to congratulate them and make each one of them officers in the church and just say, hey, let's celebrate. But Joshua, Joshua is not impressed. He knows what is in a man. He says, okay, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord sounds kind of like a negative spin on a good thing, Joshua. Why the negative attitude? You have a nation full of people who are ready to sign the pledge, ready to raise their hand, ready to walk down the aisle. Joshua, this is like change the, the music to the next key, and let's capitalize on this. The, the, the person just said they are willing to enter rehab. Let's celebrate. But Joshua knows. No amount of decision-making on your part or mine can change your heart. The fact that these folks still have idols in their possession in verse 23 proves Joshua's point that as sincere as their intention is, that sincerity is not the key to their future success. So what does Joshua do next? He, he has succeeded in getting these people. I don't know if he planned it. I'd like to think he didn't because that seems contrived. But he has succeeded in getting them to say not just once, but three times, we will serve the Lord. But then verse 26 for me gets really strange. This rock, this stone that Joshua sets up, right? Right? Now, when God's prophets in the Old Testament, when they criticize idolatry, they, they refer to a block of wood or to a stone that cannot hear, that cannot speak, that is not alive. And yet here Joshua is saying, this stone has been listening to all of these words. All of which words? All the words which the Lord Has spoken to us. We expect Joshua to say, This stone has been listening to all of your words that you have promised God, and that this stone is going to hold you accountable to your promise. That's not what he says. He says, This stone has listened to all of God's words. Verses 2 through 13, that gospel summary of the Lord, of what he has done for these people again and again. The rock is remembering the word of God. We get to thinking that perhaps on the graph line of our life, the story of my life, that maybe the climax was when I made a decision to follow Jesus, as if that were the key of my story. But the rock is not remembering all of my brave words. The rock is remembering the only words that are truly life-giving and life-changing, the gospel, the word of God. In pagan ceremonies, the gods were called as witnesses of the vows that people were making. Here, Joshua calls upon this inanimate object of creation, a rock, to be a witness. But if you think about it, what power is there in a stone or in a pledge or in a promise? What power is there in any of that? Can a rock somehow listen to God's words and then change your rock hard heart and make it the kind of heart that can follow through on your promises? Thankfully, Jesus has given you something a much better than a stone witness. He's giving you someone far better than that. You have the Holy Spirit. And the scripture says that the Spirit gives witness to everything that Christ spoke, to all of God's word. This is the ministry of the Holy Spirit to bring God's word into your very life to unite you to Christ and to everything Jesus did for you on the cross in the past and to unite you to Christ and everything that God will yet do for you someday in the future, all of those eternal promises that are yours in Christ. The Holy Spirit, not a dead rock or stone, but the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, he is the power who will take our stone-hard hearts, turn them into hearts of flesh, truly change us, so that then when we speak words about how we're going to follow God, that miraculous presence of the Spirit in our lives will see you through. Let's, let's pray. Lord, we thank you in Jesus' name for Jesus, our Lord, um, for his uh, conquest of all our enemies. And, and Lord, we look forward to that day when even death itself will be no more. And everything in our life right now, God, that's connected with death and with the whole uh, embrace of death, Lord, help us to make a clean break with all of that and to breathe the air of freedom that you've given to us in your kingdom because of Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.